Our scripture today comes from Hebrews 13, 18 through 25. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a cl- uh, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal you, brothers, Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. As we uh, are closing our sermon series on Hebrews, uh, we have been, uh, throughout this time, we've been reading uh, this passage or part of it as our benediction each week. That chair breaks, just be careful. It's not you, it's the chair. Um and so uh, as we have kind of delved in to see uh, the depths of who Christ is and what he has done for us, um, we are now um, being sent off. Um, this is not merely a letter, but is often thought of as a sermon as well. And so the author, the preacher himself, benedicts over his beloved uh, community here. When I was in uh, college, uh, Greg LaFollette, uh, who is the gentleman that was uh, the music that we were listening to earlier, uh, he's a musician in Nashville now, um, He, uh, we went to college together. He's from Kansas City, and there was a Navigators talent show. Navigators was the uh, campus ministry that I was involved in. And so we went out to a barn because it was Kansas, and we did a, a talent show, and many people played or they sang or they did other such talent things. He has always been a gifted musician, and he rapped because he was not just from Kansas City. He wasn't from, like, the white part of Kansas City. He was from the hood of Kansas City. And he uh, stood up and sang and rapped and just did a phenomenal job. And someone asked him later on why he had a sheet of paper with him because he read his lyrics. They said, we know you can freestyle super well. Why, why did you read the lyrics? He said, well, I couldn't trust myself. I didn't know what words might slip out as he would be doing it, so especially um, in the late or early 2000s uh, campus ministry. We are a culture of cursors and cussers. On average, an American uses five swear words per 1,000 words spoken. Known swearers use closer to 10 cuss words per 1,000. Uh, Cuss words or curse words encompass a lot of intentions. One author distinguishes between swearing, which is kind of the exclamatory nature of it, 
cursing, which is directed towards one another, or oaths, which would be cursing in God's name. There's voluntary and involuntary cursing. Voluntary cursing happens, that's what we're most familiar with, happens out of anger, frustration, humor, or pain. Involuntary cursing is usually associated with a neurological disorder like Tourette's. We are becoming increasingly desensitized to cursing in our culture, for better or worse. We tell our kids that these are 30-year-old words, and they should not and cannot use them yet, but I know they've heard us swear more uh, than I've ever heard my parents uh, swear in my entire life. F-words, F-bombs, etc. are increasingly a part of even good-natured TV shows like Ted Lasso that are bringing about kind of a, a new and different culture and way to do that. But in shows like Six Succession, it's like breathing, right? Often over the past decade, there have been many studies saying that swearing might actually be a sign of intelligence. The smarter you are, the more likely you're going to cuss. We love to justify ourselves, don't we? Blessings, however, are usually reserved for family meals and word art. Right? Scripty fonts with the word blessed from Hobby Lobby cheapen actual blessings and the word blessed into a holier-than-thou hashtag. Blessed becomes a statement of who I am, who you are, a self-determined status that we have. But to bless someone else is to speak a word of grace to them, is to offer a benediction. Benediction comes from the Latin bene, which means well or good, and desire, which means say. So when we speak a benediction over someone, we are speaking goodness over them. Whereas a curse is usually invoking anathema on someone, a benediction invokes a blessing on a community and promotes goodness and flourishing. The author of Hebrew ends his letter, his sermon, as we do with our worship, with a benediction. Why does he do this? Well, it's because a benediction is a prayerful equipping of grace. It's prayerful, it's equipping and it's grace. Let's look at prayer. I'm going to read verses 18 and 19 again. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. The author urges them. I think prayer takes effort. It takes work. Erge is, comes, is the Greek word for work. I urge you to do this. We have to pause. We have to stop. We have to begin to work prayer into the fullness of our lives. He says, I would like you, I, I urge you to pray for me because I want to be restored to you. Prayer naturally connects us with God and with one another. When we pray, we pray to someone and we pray about someone, usually ourselves or someone near and dear to us. And then he says, all the sooner. Prayer is expectant. He believes that if the people that he is writing to pray for him, he will be restored to them. He will be able to be with them sooner than if they don't pray for him. Prayer is expectant that God, God will act to affect, to change circumstances 
and outcomes. I was watching uh, Nuggets game a few weeks ago, kind of towards the beginning of the um, the Gaza um, war, and when there were about there were only nine hostages then, I believe, and the announcer was um, pointing to um, flags that were uh, erected in the uh, ball arena and said, uh, "These are for the nine hostages that have been taken, and our thoughts are with them." And it just landed so flat. Our thoughts are with them. Thoughts and prayers has been kind of washed, washed down, watered down quite a bit lately. It's taken a lot of heat and because it seems so empty, people have said. But when people just say thoughts, it seems so much emptier than thoughts and prayers. When we leave God out, just saying our thoughts are with you, something... It's very common, yeah. Something is missing. I thought as I was rereading over this this morning of how it almost puts us in the place of God. We seem to do that a lot in our own lives. There's the conversation of imminence and imminent frame. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but culture only lives in the imminent world. The imminence is those things which are nearest to us, that which can be seen, that which can be tested, that can which can be proven by our five senses. Nothing else exists out of this. This is typically how the culture of the day works. This is a faith statement to believe that what we can experience is the fullness of life. We have to believe, we have to assent that there is no invisible realm where God dwells. Those things that are invisible to us, those things that are outside our imminent frame, we call transcendence, that which is supernatural, beyond the normal of the physical realm. But we, are, we long for and are haunted by transcendence. We are hungry for it. Even in our imminent, obsessed culture, we hunger for transcendence, to feel something beyond ourselves. This is why we go to concerts. This is why we listen to music. This is why we hike mountains, to feel something that is bigger and goes beyond us. James K.A. Smith, who's a uh, professor at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, has written a lot about uh, the imminent frame, the secular world, and he writes, this is kind of a long quote, but I think it captures um, where we are at. He talks about, as, as he's introing this one of his books, he talks about um, suddenly, you know, you you believe only in those things that are nearest to in, to you. Those only only those things that you can prove within the imminent frame. And then he says, but one of your friends converts to Catholicism and invites you to go to Christmas Eve service, but you don't go. So you stay home alone, and before you know it, just as the bourbon is taking hold, one of those unbelievably ambiguous and nostalgic songs. By the postal service comes on. You know, one of the ones, one of the songs with the sprite light tune that lulls you into thinking it's just banal triviality, but then somehow you hear it again as if for the first time, and all of a sudden you feel yourself in the song. And I'm looking through the glass where the light bends at the cracks, and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, pretending the echoes belong to someone, someone I used to know. And you're spooked by the longings this articulates. 
naming something that wells up in you from some subterranean cavern in your consciousness, and you feel stupid that you're crying, but you can't stop. And you want to blame it on the bourbon and the loneliness, and yet there's the oddest taste of some distant joy calling to you in those tears. And you're not sure what to do with any of this. This is the longing for something transcendent. Maybe you begin to doubt your doubts. Maybe you begin to pray in this moment. Not only are you hungering for transcendence anymore, but you begin to taste and see the one that who transcends our imminent frame. The practice of prayer is one of those things that cuts across the vein of believing and doubting. To bring your prayers to God is to trust him with your life and to expect him to act just as the author does. So we must pray. We should pray. I don't want to should on us, but it is a part of our lives to be able to see what God is doing. And it is work. We do have to set time aside <coughs> regularly to pray. We have to pause. We have to be still before God. But we also pray continually. We pray in every moment. Prayer creates holy habits and sacred rhythms in our lives and connects us with God. Prayer is light and it is leaven. As, as light, prayer exposes what God is doing in our lives and in the lives of those around us, both in the imminent and the transcendent. Our desires, both broken and beautiful, our concerns, pressing and frivolous, our hearts sacred and profane. Prayer shines a light on those. As leaven, prayer infects the wholeness of our lives. Suddenly, it is lifted and lightened, and we begin to see what is happening. It gives life, and it brings life. It extends the life that we have been given through Jesus Christ. Prayer, as leaven, begins to infect a God awareness throughout our whole lives. It's personal, and it's public. It's not private, excluded, like holding it on for ourselves, but it is and flows out of our hearts and into the world. Eugene Peterson says, Prayer acts on the principle of the fulcrum, the small point where great leverage is exercised, awareness and intensification, expansion and deepening at the conjunction of heaven and earth, God and neighbor, self and society. Prayer is the action that integrates the inside and the outside of life, that correlates the personal and the public, and that addresses individual needs and national interest. No other thing that we do is as simultaneously beneficial to society and to the soul as the act of prayer. I think prayer is incredibly important and as we enter the new year, I want us as a community to be a community of prayer. And so um, starting in mid-January and kind of moving through, what season would that be? Um, Epiphany and into Lent, um, all the way up to um, Psalm, uh, Psalm, Palm Sunday. That's the, the together, both those words together. Palm Sunday is just the Psalm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is going to be, uh, we're going to be looking at prayer, and we're going to look at prayer in general, and we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer together, because prayer connects us 
with the purposes of God and opens our eyes to see what He is doing around us. Ultimately, it equips us. It equips us. Look at verses 20 and 21. This is the prayer, the benediction that we've been reading. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The main verb of this uh, section, this, this, these two verses, is equip. Equipping is the same word that uh, was used as the term created in verses 11, 3, that the universe was created by the word of God. We are created by the God of peace. He is creating us, forming us, fashioning us. How is he doing this? Through Jesus. Most seen. What God has done in the world is most seen in who Jesus is. Both phrases in the benediction end with the name of Jesus. What God has done in Jesus and what he does in us is through Jesus. God shows his desires for his creation most fully in his Son. The author writes, God brought up again. This is an odd way to talk about Jesus' resurrection, but it is more than just resurrection. It is the bringing up, the bringing out, the exaltation that God worked so that Jesus sits on the throne in heaven. But more than that, it includes us as well. He is called the great shepherd of the sheep. He is leading us in this bringing up into new life as well giving us his life. By Jesus' shepherding, God is equipping us. He's creating in us everything good to do his will, that which is pleasing. These might seem like nice, gentle terms, but what do they mean? We have to go back to how the author identifies God from the beginning. He says, may the God of peace, God's ultimate desire for his creation, that we would live in peace with him and with one another. God sent Jesus to provide the blood of the covenant, the sacrifice to span the gap between God and humans. The goal is that we would be in a pleasing relationship with God, a peaceful relationship with God. This word is complete, it's whole, sanctified. This is the same Hebrew concept of peace, We've probably heard of the word shalom as the Hebrew word for peace. The Greek word used here is arene, and it carries the same meaning. Shalom in Hebrew uh, means peace, but it's not just merely the absence of war. It points to something better in its place. Its basic meaning is complete or whole. It has the image of a, of a stone that has no cracks in it, or a stone wall that is complete with nothing missing. It's finished. Shalom refers to something that is complex with lots of pieces that is in a state of completeness, especially when it refers to a person's well-being. Shalom understands that life is a moving puzzle and pieces get out of order. Health relationships, situations. When something is missing, your shalom breaks down. Your life needs to be restored. To bring shalom, 
is to make something complete, to repair the relationship, to right the wrongs. Moreover, when rival peoples find shalom, it doesn't just mean that they stop fighting. It means that they start working together and sharing for each other's benefit. When Jesus was born, he was called the Prince of Peace. It marked the arrival of shalom. Paul calls Jesus the whole complete human, the peace that we need in our lives. And I think we all long for peace. We all long for wholeness. We all long for completeness. And this is what God equips us with to do his will, to do that which is pleasing to him. This requires us to act out of humility, to be patient, to love. This is quite the opposite of cursing. Whether we're behind the wheel of the car or we're visiting family at the holidays or we're just dealing with life, we are called to be people of peace. We participate in the life of the great shepherd when we make peace. We do God's will toward one another. We please God as we offer peace to those who we might even call our enemies or who might call us their enemy. Holidays with family can often be this. It's a time when we long for peace and shalom and are often without it. We experience lack. We experience things out of order. We experience the cracks that are in the wall even more wholly and more fully. What would it look like, instead of pointing out those cracks all the time, maybe filling those cracks to sow the peace this week and in the coming weeks? I think it would at least start with praying for peace. I think it would begin there. It might result in tongues being bitten as well. I know it probably will for me. (laughs) To extend peace in this way means that we have to trust God to act in our prayers, to shepherd us through life and death and life. I think we often have to go back to um, chapter 13, verse 6, and confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This peace equips us to extend grace. This is how the author ends his book. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Ha ha. <laughs> you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is probably the most personal information that we have about the author, but it is just touching some things that um, the readers and the, the listeners original would, would just know about who he is, where he is, the circles that he runs in, being that he mentions Timothy's release. This is a, a common name in the ancient Near East, but is likely to refer to the Timothy that is so closely associated with Paul. Um, We'll put the author in Pauline circles at least. But what we see most of this is that the author has a personal relationship with the readers. They know him. He knows them. He longs to be with them again. He longs to bring Timothy with them. And his last word to them before he can do that, 
before you can be with them again is grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's not earned. It's given. It's a gift. There's no performance needed in it, which means we don't do something to earn it. We can't do something to have it taken away from us. It is God's undeserving covenant commitment to us, that which he has, the blood of the covenant which he pours out and has raised Jesus from the dead is his commitment to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. We have not earned it. God has given it to us. And he committed, uh, he's committed to us because this grace comes to us through Jesus. The whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus and the grace that he gives us. Jesus was sent to be better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the priests, better than the sacrifices that, that have gone before so that we may know the deep well of grace that God has for us. Grace understands that the worthiness of its object is never really what matters. We are not worthy of his grace, which is what makes it so amazing. Maybe you don't want grace, though. Maybe you want to earn what you have in your life because it allows you to not let anyone tell you how to live. You don't want to let go of the reins of your life. You get to continue to be your own shepherd. But I'll argue you are a much meaner and harsher shepherd than the great shepherd Jesus. We can't live up to our own standards of morality, and we certainly judge harshly, harshly, even curse others who don't live up to our own standards. Just pay attention to your inner dialogue as you drive through a parking lot. Maybe it's not their inner, their driving standards or their morality standards. Maybe it's their political views, the color of someone's skin, their religion, their work ethic, their socioeconomic status that causes you to curse them rather than extend grace. And True true Grit, the movie and book, and Charles Portis, the author, writes, you must pay for everything in this world one way and another. There's nothing free except the grace of God. You cannot earn that or deserve it. There's a sister church of ours in Inglewood. Uh, Nathan Hoag is the uh, uh, pastor there. And um, um, another friend, uh, Jared Mackey, uh, pulled the church together, and he just called it the sacred grace. And he just kind of brought these words together, and he thought it sounded good and all that. Didn't really think through the meaning of it, and so they were sitting around and talking about it. And he said, well, what, what does this mean for us? And Nathan goes, well, the way I've always explained it is all of life is sacred, and all of life is grace. All of life is sacred and all of life is grace. And I think that flows out of the understanding that God penetrates this world. He is transcendent, but he is imminent as well. He is near to us to show us how much grace he has for us. If one of the most simple ways to experience and extend grace in our lives is to say grace to say grace over your meals by yourself and with others, to pause for a moment and say grace. It might seem inconsequential. It might seem like thoughts and prayers. But saying grace does two things. It creates thankful hearts, and it turns us into lovers. With thankful hearts, it acknowledges our humble place in God's creation and how he cares for us by giving us the good gifts of food 
and people to share it with. A thankful heart acknowledges that we do not take our place in God's creation uh, for granted, nor his shepherding of us. Norman Wurzba, a theologian at Duke Divinity School, says, To say grace or offer a benediction of thanksgiving over a meal is is, uh, the highest and most honest expressions of our humanity. When eating is enfolded within the language and grammar of grace, then to eat is to see, smell, touch, and taste God's provisioning care. Not only does it create thankful hearts, it turns us into lovers. Lovers delight, relish, play, create, and see. Lovers have their eyes open to the work of God in their everyday, ordinary lives. Turns food from mere nourishment into conviviality. Wurzba again says, This is why non-lovers are rarely good gardeners or cooks. Love creates the curiosity and intimacy that leads people to experience more fully the integrity and sanctity of life. See, a benediction prayerfully equips us with grace. It brings restoration. It brings peace. It brings covenant. It brings grace. And I believe these are the ultimate things, the things that we ultimately long for in our lives. But it's only through Jesus that we receive these. We're going to forget. We're going to forget to pause and pray. We're going to rush around. We're going to sleep in too late. We're going to forget to, or even worse, work against the shalom of our enemies. We're going to cop out on saying grace over our meals because we don't want to make people uncomfortable. But this is the true grace. This is what Jesus has done for us. He prays for us. And he continues to intercede for us at the right hand of God on our behalf. He gives us his life, leading us as the great shepherd, leading us into shalom and peace. He has said the ultimate grace over the ultimate meal, dying for us, that we can celebrate as a foretaste of the heavenly banquet someday. Jesus is our prayer. Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is our grace. Jesus is our benediction. I think this is the type of community we want to be known for as the table, a community that extends the benediction of Jesus to those around us. Others may disagree with our beliefs, but are nonetheless compelled by our lives because we speak blessing rather than curses over them as we work for peace. Ultimately, benedictions do this. They draw us out of ourselves and into community, equipping us to bless one another with the blessing of grace that we have been given through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, open our eyes to see what you are doing around us. We are so easily caught up with um, the everyday, ordinary tasks of the day, the big news stories that... um, just continue to uh, press the reality of the need for shalom and peace in this world. And then we experience that brokenness through our lives as well in our families and the relationships of those around us, Lord. Give us your peace. Lead us by Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Help us to long for and be hungry and to pray for your presence 
your peace in our lives, that we may be able to extend that to those around us. Be with us. Be near to us. Open our eyes and ears. Help us to see and taste that you are good, that you are here, and that you long and you love to extend your grace to us through Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen.